Hi, everyone. Tonight's reading is from 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 2 to 22. I'd encourage you to um, open up your Bibles, otherwise it's on the screen behind me. 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divis divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there has, there have been, sorry, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you has, have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suffer, suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Good evening, everyone. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Ken. Uh, it's great to be here with you tonight. I'm following verse 7. I don't have much of a covering on my head. My kids tell me all the time. Uh, adding my welcome to Mark's, especially if you are visiting newish to Wollongong Baptist Church or watching through the live stream, we're really glad that you have chosen to join us. As Mark has helpfully got us thinking, tonight we are continuing a series 
in the second half of 1 Corinthians, which we've called perfect mess. And right up front, I want to acknowledge that for many people, chapter 11 evokes strong emotions and often equally strong opinions. My eldest daughter, Amelia, read it last week in her quiet time, and her comment that it's really weird, Dad, uh, is probably quite representative of how many people feel about this chapter. There have been multiple PhDs and books written on just the first half of the chapter, so please don't expect every detail of every verse to be covered tonight. We're not staying here for the next three weeks. Uh, My goal is going to be much more modest, to observe the larger movements that take place through the chapter and think through together how we can put this into practice to the glory of God. The very well-known saying, you can't see the forest for the trees, I think has great relevance as we approach this chapter. If we come to it demanding the answers to all of our questions or demanding that it fit into our preconceived ideas of what is right, it is very possible that we won't hear the answer to the question that God through Paul is answering. If we'll willingly step back a bit and see the larger contours, hopefully that will provide us some helpful guidelines within which we can work out together more of the details in time. So with that in mind, and to again recognise our dependence upon God, will you pray with me? Let's do that now. Lord God, we do thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians. We thank you for the opportunity that we've got to be able to read it together and think it through. Uh, We thank you for the church at Corinth uh, and the mistakes that they made that led to Paul writing this letter, not only so that they could understand better Uh, how to live in a way that pleases you, but that we, uh, many, many years later, would be able to read this word. Uh, And we pray that by your spirit, you would enable us not only to understand it, but to actually put it into practice so that in our response, we will glorify you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Whether it was the recent funeral of the late Queen Elizabeth or the royal weddings in the years before. There's a couple of them here, hopefully. Next two slides. What I think you'll find is very clear, it's obvious that women wearing hats in church in England is about as close to mandatory as it gets. Now, I assume that today being Sunday at church in Wollongong means that different rules apply. But I've noted that no one other than me has a hat on. And if my hat is making you feel just a tad uncomfortable, well, there is one up the back, um, that was my intention. I, I wore it because I want us to recognise at the outset that the context of being here in church, meeting with others to worship God, can make, for some, a piece of clothing that would otherwise just be ignored into a statement. It is not merely a hat because of the setting in which it's worn. Now, while we can't ask every individual in the pictures what their purpose was in wearing a hat to church, it's safe to say that the number of those who wore it as a sign of submitting to authority was either zero or exceptionally close to zero. It's just not what they were doing it. Females, young and old, wore hats of all varieties in order to look good because society expects it to communicate class or fashion or or some combination of all of the above. And conversely, men, due to societal expectations, didn't wear hats at all. 
This is so important to establish because for many people, the first half of 1 Corinthians 11 is exclusively about the idea of head coverings for women, whether it's veils, scarves, hats, fascinators, possibly even fancy hairstyles. Rather than asking the question, why does Paul give the instruction he does? The sole application is inevitably expressed as some kind of requirement for women. One danger of that is that we can demand the outward form without ensuring the reason matches the original purpose for which the instruction was given. Given that our society is so different to Corinth in the first century, we need to ask, does wearing or not wearing a hat communicate the same thing it did when Paul wrote this? One of the advantages that we have from looking at the whole chapter in one go, having already looked at the chapters that precede it, is that rather than focusing just on what women wear on their head, we become conscious that these instructions sit within a range of broader issues that Paul was addressing. We've already suggested over the last few weeks that while a simplification, chapters 8 right through to 14 address Christian worship of Jesus in the world and then in the church. Paul deals with a variety of issues in the way, in the order that he does, based on where you were likely to encounter these issues. The issue of idle food, what you could eat, when, where and with who, took place in what we would call the secular world out there. Paul addressed occasions where you might bump into a a fellow believer out there, but chapters 8 to 10 are primarily about how Christians express their trust in Jesus amongst or before unbelievers, what could be called worship in the world. Now, as we get to chapter 11, right through to chapter 14, Paul writes about the correct way for Christians to worship when they meet together, that is, worship in the church. And all of this means that chapter 11 is not about two unrelated topics, women's head coverings followed by communion, as if they were random topics being addressed in a systematic theology. Instead, chapter 11 is part of a unit that extends all of the way to the end of chapter 14 about how Christians should worship Jesus when they meet together. And so tonight, we're going to attempt to cover the whole of chapter 11 with one single question. Does worship require us to be the same or different? Does worship require us to be the same or different? We'll have a look in verses 2 to 16, distinction as worship. Then in verses 17 to 34, worship without distinctions. And finally, initial recommendations for worship at WBC. So let's have a look at that first point, distinction as worship. Paul begins there in verse 2 by praising the Corinthians for remembering him and holding to the traditions as Paul had given them. While their worship in the world had evidently been causing confusion both to non-Christians and to Christians, their worship when meeting together receives a better evaluation because they've continued to do church in the way that Paul had established for them. But immediately Paul lets them know of a practice and its underlying underlying understanding that needs some tweaking. It's to do with the difference between men and women. In verse 3, he starts by describing the basis of this distinction. Christ is the kephaler of every man. Man is the kephaler of the woman, 
of the women, and God is the kephalair of Christ. The Greek word kephalair, like the English word head, which is used here to translate it, has a range of meaning. It is the name of what we call the head, but it can also mean source or authority, as in head of the river or head of a corporation. Head or kephalair's meaning in both languages depends on its context in a sentence. Now, suppose that I say to you, as the head of this expedition, I say it's time we all head off to the head of the river. All of you nod your head if you understand. It's a little confusing, isn't it? But interestingly, anyone with a decent grasp of English can work out fairly easily that I just use the one word head with four different meanings. And for that sentence to make any sense, any logical sense, the first head must be boss the second to move, and so on. Meaning that the listener or the reader can confidently work out what was intended by each use of the word head. Likewise, the one word kephalair is used in 1 Corinthians 11 with at least two meanings. Unfortunately, unlike my example, the context does not conclusively settle the question of which meaning is attended in each occurrence. Some of them are clear, some of them are not so clear. The NIV translate kephalair as head, each time leaving the choice of meaning up to the reader, while other translations go with body part and source or body part and origin. The arguments about translation are complex, and while they are important, even if I spend the next 10 or 20 or 30 minutes describing and comparing all the arguments, we probably won't all agree. But if we all do zoom out, regardless of which translation you land on, what it meant in practice in Corinth in the first century AD for Christians to worship correctly, a distinction had to be made between men and women. If men prayed or prophesied with their head covered, it would dishonour their head, possibly, or probably worse, would dishonour their head, that is Christ. On the other hand, when women pray or prophesy in church, they should have a covering, Otherwise, they dishonor their head or possibly husband or men, which at first seems very confusing to us because the same action, wearing a covering, for men leads to dishonor, whereas for women, it leads to honor. Why the different outcome for the different sexes? Well, the truth is we don't know for sure. Often the Old Testament would give the background that explains these differences. But if the priests are the most likely parallel very strict instructions made clear that males were expected to wear a head covering when gathered to lead worship, not women being expected to have a head covering. Leviticus chapter 16 verses 3 and 4 make clear that the priests, who were only and ever only ever men, not only could but must wear a turban when entering the holy place. Likewise today, Jews, both male and female, do wear a little round skull cap if at no other time, especially when they pray, somewhere at all the time. But according to verse 7, when Christians worship, because man is the image and glory of God, when he does either of these speaking activities in the church, he shouldn't wear a covering on his head. Whereas when women pray and prophesy, they should have a covering. A difference is required depending on whether you're male or female. What will become very important for later in this letter 
is the fact that women were expected to both pray and to prophesy at church in mixed company. Meaning the difference Paul is requiring here in chapter 11 is not who can speak and who can't. Unlike the Jewish priesthood, which was exclusively male, in the church there is a God-given speaking role for women, which surely is the most grossly neglected conclusion that is explicit from this passage. Because a distinction is demanded, the assumption of too many is that women simply can't speak in church at all. But that is not what this passage says. What women shouldn't do is, whilst performing this speaking role, reject the outward sign that was appropriate for women praying and prophesying in their society. What men shouldn't do is wear something that was inappropriate for a man. Both needed to visibly demonstrate in a socially understandable way that they acknowledged the sex that God had created them and the resulting differences that came from that. Now, it's quite common to dismiss this command as a merely cultural quirk. But the referral to creation in verses 8 and 9 says that this is a distinction that's an ongoing way that it was and it always should be. These days in our culture, sexual distinctions are dismissed by many as merely cultural impositions. Contrary to what Paul wrote, short haircuts or even shaved heads do not cause shame if a woman chooses such a style. These days it's her choice. Likewise, men can have long hair today without it being considered feminine. And there's something true in what these people have observed and commented on. In Scotland, a kilt represents manliness. In Australia, it would raise for many a lot of questions. And my kids would certainly not be happy if I wore one. (laughs) If there is a distinction between sexes, sorry, but this acknowledgement of real merely cultural variations in clothing or outward appearance has led many to the underlying assumption that equality demands that there are no differences whatsoever. If there is a distinction between the sexes, then one has to be superior to the other. To insist on difference is therefore judged as sexism. But that is only true if you assume that one's value or importance derives from their role. And it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, the Bible says that it isn't. If God can be the head of Jesus, and that is not a claim to superiority, then neither does the difference between men and women have to communicate that one is less than the other. Jesus is God. He's co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. And so this is talking about something else, a difference that doesn't change value. Difference in role does not have to mean difference in importance. Now, while we might ascribe more importance and value to certain roles, that does not mean that we have evaluated correctly. Instead, this is pointing us in the direction that distinctions are God-given and maintaining them is a part of worshipping God in the way that he has revealed. Hence, why WBC describes its view on the sexes as complementarian. Women and men are equal in value, yet distinct in many other ways. And so the application, the initial application, women pray and prophesy to the glory of God whilst making it clear that you are women who receive and value your God-given, God-created uniqueness. Men, 
Application for you too. Pray and prophesy to the glory of God while making it clear in your society that you are a man as God intended you to be. So does this mean that women should submit to the authority of men? Can they be a pastor or elder or deacon? Can they preach or lead a mixed Bible study group? Should they wear a hat if they're coming up on the stage? Or what is the equivalent appropriate outward sign in our culture? Well, the answer to those questions depend upon a whole range of things, one of which we're going to look at in a few weeks when we come to chapter 14. We also need to be reading this letter together with other passages like 1 Timothy 2 and Ephesians 5, Romans 16 and Titus 2. But as I warned at the start, 1 Corinthians 11 won't answer all of our questions and it is important for us to admit as much. We'll come back to this to explore further how we can start to think through applying this today. But before we do that, we need to think about this second related issue that's found in verses 17 to 34. While verses 2 to 16 start off with Paul's praise, what is immediately clear in the next section, starting in verse 17, is that the Corinthians' practice with regards to communion, you think the one that it would be easy to get right, has gone off the rails dramatically. Rather than less than ideal or needing some tweaking, communion, as it was being done in Corinth, was doing more harm than good, verse 17 says. Why? Because it was reinforcing divisions. Which on the back of what I've just concluded seems more than a little strange, doesn't it? Men and women must express distinction in order for worship to be appropriate and acceptable. But the fact that communion was making distinctions dishonoured God, made worship unacceptable. So how can right worship sometimes require distinctions and at other times demand that there not be any? Well, hopefully by thinking this through, we'll further clarify what is actually at the core of both issues. Verse 21, Paul describes the problem as some were going ahead with private meals and as a result, one person has so much that they got drunk while others were going home hungry which, as a little tangent, shows very clearly that communion, as it was originally practiced, was not just a small square of gluten-free bread and a thimble full of grape juice. It was a meal that, done the wrong way, could be a feast for some while being a fast for others. Now, almost certainly behind this behaviour was differences in social classes in Corinth. Some suggest that the wealthier Corinthians could get along to church earlier, while slaves and the poorer Christians could only come after their jobs and their roles were finished. Others think that the rich just looked down on the poor and treated them as second-class citizens even within the church, only eating together with others of their same high status. Church in that time didn't meet in a great big building like this. It met in people's homes. And at some point, there was a physical limitation, which meant you couldn't have more people in that one room. And so in response, it's likely that the Corinthian solution followed the normal practice in society. The upper class sat in one room and got all the good food and wine, while the lower class and slaves sat elsewhere and received nothing. Whatever the precise societal factors were, Paul is horrified that the Corinthians haven't realised what an outrage this distinction communicated. It was despising the church of God by humiliating those who had nothing. 
because of the distinction that was being made. This wasn't even the Lord's Supper. It had become greedy individual suppers. It wasn't worship of God. It was self-worship. Having condemned their behaviour in the strongest possible terms, Paul reminds them of the purpose of the Lord's Supper. He goes back to the original lessons that he'd probably taught many of them when he was there in Corinth, that Jesus gave this meal as a way of remembering him. By participating in this meal, the Christians were supposed to be proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. As they ate and drank, they visibly symbolised the means by which they had been given life, the broken body of Jesus, his blood shed in their place. But if, instead of eating, according to its intention, the meal was eaten in an unworthy manner, verse 27 calls it, rather than receiving into themselves the symbols of life, their eating was sin against the body and blood of Christ. Now, pastorally, over time, I have had a few people who've come to me thinking that they were unworthy to partake in communion. I'm still a sinner. I I don't feel close to God. I've done something that just makes me unworthy. And my suggestion to them has been, think deeply about what communion is intended to communicate. And so I encourage anybody out there, if you feel the same way, that there's something in your life that makes you unworthy to take communion. Your gut feeling is both right and wrong. You are right. You're not worthy. You're not worthy to be given life. But that is precisely why Jesus died in your place and in mine. Communion points to the fact that every single one of us has a need that we could not meet. Communion is not a meal for the perfect. It's a meal for those who know themselves as sinners. So examining oneself, verse 28, it's not reflecting back on the last month since the last communion and concluding that you've done enough to merit your participation in communion this time around. Quite the opposite. If any of us ever starts to think of ourselves as deserving, we have misunderstood communion and what it points to. If we see ourselves as somehow better than others, somehow more deserving, that's when we're participating in an unworthy manner. And so Paul's practical advice, examine yourself before eating and all eat together. In order for communion to be worship, we must discern the body of Christ. And in order for communion to be worship, there has to be unity. Now, while the debate in our time regarding communion may not be quite as fierce as the one continuing over gender distinctions, what exactly the requirement for communion is has generated significant, at times even violent, debates. What discerning the body of Christ is has been interpreted in a a variety of ways. And again, as in the previous section, the arguments are important. But the application that's here in the passage gives us the unquestionable direction we should be heading in. In worshipping, Through the means of communion, there must be no hint of segregation. Anything that communicates that one follower of Christ deserves to eat, while another follower of Christ should refrain, is a twisting of the gospel, a perversion of the gospel. Anything that communicates that someone is more important than another says that Jesus is a liar. 
Paul even makes the extraordinary claim that the death of some at Corinth was because they were doing communion wrong. As Ananias and Sapphira's sin had resulted in swift and shocking punishment, so some at Corinth have fallen asleep, Paul's shorthand for death, because of a selfish motive that had led to a practice that denied grace, which obviously raises the stakes quite significantly. But it also leaves us with another question. Why does reinforcing differences with regard to male and female honour God, but differences with regards to communion dishonour him? Surely one of the implications of this second part of chapter 11 is that if we distinguish between men and women with regards to who gets to participate in communion, that would be a terrible example of a sinful distinction. And so I think this is where reading the whole chapter together pays off, seeing these as not two separate topics. It is exceedingly clear that it was Paul's intention to show that making distinction is common to both of these issues. Going back to our original question, does worship require us to be the same or different? And the answer is it depends And so we have to work out why is distinction essential and pleasing to God in one case and an abomination to him in the other. Some will say that Paul arbitrarily or because he's bound to his woman-demeaning culture. And it's because of that he insists on differences of roles for the different sexes. But I think that it's missing a really important point. With regards to communion, we've skipped over an important distinction that is assumed rather than stated in this passage, although I think it's stated elsewhere. If someone has not put their trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, then communion is not a meal for them. Grace isn't in the bread and juice, but in receiving the one to whom the bread and the juice point to. And so if someone hasn't trusted in Jesus, then they're excluded from the meal that he gave to remember him. But once somebody is in Christ, whether they are male or female, Greek or Jew, slave or free, then they are one in Christ. And so then to suggest a distinction in worth by privileging one over the other would be wrong. For some to receive the juice and bread while others receive only the bread is wrong. So again, our original question, does worship require us to be the same or different? It depends. So what are we going to do here at WBC? If the difference in worship suggests a difference in value, then don't do it. Don't go near it. And so if there's a group within our church that feels looked down on, they feel second class, then we need to rethink how we do church so that it clearly communicates the equal value of all. Women and men are equal in value. Old and young, married and single, born in Australia, born elsewhere, university educated or not, all are of equal value and must be treated as such for worship to be acceptable to God. But equal value does not remove from the church all distinctions. God has given each of us roles that are unique. And so men and women are designed to be different, and to live that out is to the glory of God. Children and adults, extroverts and introverts, 
Some will love being up the front. Others won't ever set foot on stage. Do what God has created you and gifted you for. Some will lead home groups. Others will be there to join in the discussion. One is not more valuable than the other. They are just different. Equal value does not mean that we are identical. And so does worship require us to be the same or different? Well, it depends. Does the difference refer to someone's value? Make sure that all see and know that they are equal. Does it refer to role? Make sure all see and know we are fulfilling our God-given role. Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, thank you so much that Peter acknowledged, the Apostle Peter acknowledged, that the Apostle Paul's writings are sometimes confusing, hard to understand. Uh, and we agree with him totally. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 is not an easy passage and there's things in there that uh, potentially uh, just rub us the wrong way. Uh, we pray that as we continue to think this through together in our community, um, that you would enable us to understand what you're saying to us, not placing restrictions on us so that we can't do what we want to do, but enabling us to understand what we've desi been designed to do, uh, to live to your glory. Enable us to be able to distinguish between issues, which are ones on which we should maintain distinctions, and ones on which we must insist those distinctions don't exist. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.